With your Bibles open to Mark chapter 6, before we begin our study of Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6 this morning, I want to take us back to Mark chapter 5 and clarify one point about, a, about the passage last week that I do not believe I made very clear, and I think it's crucial for the understanding of our passage this morning. Look with me in Mark chapter 5, verses 34, verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Christ is the one who healed uh, the lady, not her faith, and I made that comment last week. But the question should be asked, and probably was asked, maybe in your own mind, but what about the passage? Because here it says, Christ says, your faith has made you well. And what I want to make clear is, Christ is the one who healed, but he used the medium of faith. Faith is the medium by which God operates in the life of a believer. Or you might say, faith is the mode in which the healing took place in this woman's life. Without faith, as the Bible tells us, it is impossible to please God. So we come to this passage here in Mark 6 this morning, and we're going to continue to see the theme of belief and unbelief, or faith and unbelief continued in this passage. Mark has spent a number of chapters now all the way from, at a very minimum, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, where he calmed the seas, highlighting the teaching of Christ on the necessity of faith. And here in this passage this morning, the Holy Spirit, through the writer Mark, teaching us the truth of the danger or the power of unbelief and, more fully, that the danger or power of unbelief is overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The danger or power of unbelief is overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Point number one this morning, we're going to look at the, the offense of Christ. And the point I have is we share in the offense of Christ. We share in the offense of Christ. Put your eyes on the text, Mark 6, beginning in verse 1. He went away from there, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, that's important to note because his disciples going with him in the last couple uh, chapters are sort of on a crash course, a preparation for the ministry that they're about to undertake, which we will see next week in Mark 6, 7 through 13, where Christ sends out his apostles. So everything over the last few chapters has really been a, a different, using different things, using different circumstances, using different situations to build the faith and prepare the apostles for the ministry. And here they are coming with him. And they arrive on the Sabbath day to his hometown, which would have been Nazareth. And he began to teach in the synagogue. Let me explain a bit about the synagogue. The synagogue would have been a central building within a local community. And you could think of it as the modern day church. Now, there wasn't uh, the pews as you see them here or a pulpit at the front, but you would go in a door and there would be a, a large rectangular area in the middle of the room, a dirt-covered floor, and surrounding that dirt-covered floor would have been rows or steps, and you could, steps of, of just wood, uh, stone steps, and you could sit on those steps surrounding the middle of the room, 360 degrees. And there was a little, maybe a little uh, closet off to the side, a little alcove where they would store the scrolls and different uh, religious writings of that day. 
And a rabbi, either the local rabbi or a visiting rabbi, would be able to take one of the scrolls, open it, and teach. And the people sitting around, pretty much 360 degrees, being able to hear them. This is the scenario by which Christ comes. He walks into the synagogue. They would have known him now as a rabbi or as a visiting rabbi. He has his entourage with him, one of the marks of a teacher. And he sits down and he, and he takes the word and he begins to teach the centrality of the ministry of Christ, as we notice all the way back in Mark chapter 1. And look at the way they responded. They were astonished at his teaching. And they asked him, or they asked rhetorically five questions. Look at those. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of jo- James, Joas, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is the, the local boy. This is the the one who has grown up among them. And for 30 years, the veil of his ordinariness kept them from seeing the deity of Christ, who he was as not just son of man, but also son of God. A man that had lived among them for 30 years and now stands and begins to proclaim the truth and proclaims it in such a way that it's astonishing to them. Not just the way he proclaimed it, but the contrast between what they knew and now what they were hearing. He's one who teaches with authority and they become astonished and their astonishment quickly turns to rejection. And the rejection of Christ does not come lightly. They question his wisdom. That would have been one thing. In fact, it probably would have been a good question. The question, where is he getting this from? And they they question his mighty works. But they weren't questioning it with the desire of knowing where did it come from. They were questioning it out of a means of rejection. Because they take this denial to a very personal level. Instead of pointing to Christ as the son of Joseph which anyone at that day would have pointed out. That's Cody, the son of Mike. No, they point out Christ, the son of Mary. Instead of pointing out Christ, the son of Joseph, they point to Christ, the son of Mary. In effect, they're calling him illegitimate and his mother a prostitute. This got personal real quickly. It wasn't a simple rejection of his works and his teaching. It was a rejection of him as the Christ. His very, not only his very nature, but also his his lineage and his family. And this rejection certainly wasn't anything new for Christ. We studied all the way back in Mark 3, 20 through 31 and 31 through 35. The rejection, his fam the rejection of his family. Remember, they came to him and they said, listen, You're going a little wacko. We're going to have a little family intervention here and pull you away. So it wasn't anything new. He was well acquainted with rejection. And yet the love of Christ, wanting to minister to his own, his own people, his own town, comes to them and experiences this rejection. And certainly in his humanity, it must have been very, very painful. In fact, we know it's painful. 
Because Isaiah 53 points to the sorrow and grief that comes from being rejected. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That is the Christ here of Mark 6. Well acquainted with the grief. And here he is acquainted with the grief of the rejection of his own town, of his own people as it were. C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity gives us what he calls a trilemma, a dilemma in three. In the dilemma or the trilemma is, is Christ the son of the living God? Is he a liar or is he a lunatic? And this is his quote. I am trying here, Lewis says, to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Christ I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. See, if we're going to, if we're going to claim Christ as our own, if we're going to be committed to Christ, we are and we will and we do share in the offense of Christ, in the rejection of Christ. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that that rejection may come from those that are closest to us. Matthew ten thirty four. do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That sword being the gospel. The promise that the gospel of Jesus would divide families even. And so really for us practically, the question should be asked, are you ready this week, Monday through next Sunday, to be rejected because you name Christ? Well, you may not get that much rejection maybe this week, But let's not be naive to think that the rejection will come and will come increasingly increasingly obvious as we grow in our love and commitment to Christ. It's going to come. And and as as this world manifests the sin of it in a darker way and in a more public manner, the rejection is going to come and we should not be surprised for it. In fact, we should expect it And we should rejoice that we are able to share in the offense of Christ and share in the sufferings of Christ. The rejection of Christ ultimately here being for these people and even for those that are around us that reject Christ being the fruit of unbelief. Let's look at verse four through six. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
and he marveled because of their unbelief. If point one was we share in the offense of Christ, point two is the dangerous power of unbelief. The unbelief of, of these people didn't just begin here. It's actually quite, got quite an historical timeline of unbelief. And we shouldn't think we are strangers when others, even closest to us, do not understand or reject or even become antagonistic against us because of following Christ. It certainly happened to Christ, and it happened all throughout the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36. In the context of Zedekiah as a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord, God says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Or Jeremiah 11, verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Certainly, unbelief of those who proclaim Christ has a long history. And unbelief is a very powerful force. You know, as Christ says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. The familiarity here with Christ in his humanity blocked them from seeing his deity. Now, it didn't quite block them because they had all the ability to believe in Christ and who he was as the Son of God. And yet they used that familiarity as an excuse to not believe. Unbelief is a powerful force. Matthew 13, verse 58 is the corresponding passage to Mark 6 here. Notice he says he, he, was, he could do no mighty work there. And the question could be asked, does that mean God is limited in his power? I think Matthew 13 helps us with this. He says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Commentary by a man named Hughes says this. I think it's helpful. Jesus could not do miracles because he would not. Omnipotence is not omnipotence, meaning all power is not all power if it is bound by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled not to show his power. Matthew makes this clear. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. It would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent for Christ to heal these people outside of their unbelief. Well, why? Because faith, as we said at the beginning, is the normal mode by which God operates. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, faith in God points the world to truth, the truth, that God alone is trustworthy. Faith in God points the world to truth that God alone is trustworthy. And when God alone is trustworthy, God gets glory. Now follow me on this. Unbelief points to God being unreliable, undependable, and ultimately untrue. 
he gets no glory when he's seen as unreliable or untrue because that's not his nature. That's not who he is. And it is our greatest joy and pleasure here on this earth is, is derived when God gains glory. Then, and then, as we call others to belief in Christ as a means of relationship with God, that's the most loving thing we can do for another person is to help them see the love of God for them. And that's the way, when they understand the love of God and God is gaining glory through their life, they have most pleasure and joy possible. Therefore, for Christ to work miraculously upon people in spite of their unbelief would have been unloving. It would have been putting a band-aid on the cancer. What they needed was belief. John Calvin says, we see then that it is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. We ought rather to argue in the opposite way, that when human means fail, the power of God is clearly revealed to us and ought to receive undivided praise. Look at the text. I want you to see the mighty grace of God even in the midst of unbelief. And he could do no mighty work there, verse five, except that he's laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. The common grace of God in that Christ healed a few sick people. We we uh, notice from Mark 2.17 that he came not for the well, but for the sick. And that the unbelief of some did not limit the power of Christ working to heal those who were sick. And in our unbelief, before we are saved, we were the enemies of Christ. He offended us. Christ offended us like he offended these people here. He caused guilt when all we wanted was pleasure from our sin. But not only that, when we were unbelievers, we were sick. We were sick with the humanly incurable cancer of sin. And God in his riches and in his mercy chose to give us faith to believe, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and then heal us as those who were sick. We were in unbelief. We needed belief. We needed faith. By grace, he gave us that faith. It's all of grace. And I think, it, I think it's tempting this morning for us as Christians. I certainly know it's tempting in my pride to say, I can't believe those guys. These townspeople that knew Jesus so well, they knew of his miracles, they knew of his wisdom, and yet they didn't believe. And I'm all too well aware this morning that so often I do the exact same thing. And yet I have even less an excuse than these people did. They didn't have this in front of them in the closed canon that it is. They didn't have the written New Testament they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Calling to mind the truths of God's word. Calling to mind that God lives within us. Calling to mind what paled in comparison to a, a, a healing of someone that, was a lep- that had a leprous disease. What paled in comparison to that is what we know today. That Christ went to that cross, he died there, 
But he did not stay there. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And he ascended into heaven. If any one of us at any time of the day can open our Bibles and hear the words of Jesus, we have no excuse for falling into unbelief. And yet, and yet we so often do so. Unbelief for the Christian is what causes our disobedience so often. Instead of believing the promises of God's word, believing the truth that is there, we don't believe. We don't think of it oftentimes as that way. But we're not believing. And yet, how amazing it is that he gives us grace and loves us because of the full belief, the full work, the full atonement of Christ for us. Notice that Christ was amazed, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. They begin, in verse 2, astonished at him. He ends this passage in astonishment with them. And the amazement of Jesus just isn't just about unbelief in the passage. It's also about belief in Scripture. Christ isn't just amazed at unbelief. He's often amazed at belief. Think of the, uh, the centurion in Luke who comes to Christ and says, if you but can say it, you don't need to come, you don't need to touch. If you can but say it, my daughter will be made well. And Christ marveling at his faith. What about us this morning? Is Christ amazed at your faith or is he amazed at your unbelief? For the Christian, by God's grace, he's always amazed at your faith because it was never yours to begin with. It was given to you. But if you don't know Christ, what a fearful thing it is that Christ is to be amazed at your unbelief. And hear the, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't go away without the, with the excuse of, I didn't know because I didn't hear. Hear this morning the work of Jesus Christ for you that took you in your sin and unbelief and out of love for you went to that cross to pay the penalty and to take the wrath of God that you deserve and simply respond in repentance and belief in the work of Christ for you. Lastly, we overcome unbelief by preaching the gospel. We overcome unbelief by preaching the gospel. Unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances. You're going to walk out of this church here in a few minutes. You're going to walk into your school. You're going to walk into your workplace. You're going to walk into the restaurant, wherever it might be that you walk into, and you're going to advance the cause of Christ into unbelief. That's the context of the Christian mission is unbelief. And so what does Christ do in response, modeling for us of what we should do in the context of unbelief? And he simply continues to teach. That's the centrality of the mission of Christ, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. He does it in verse two, and he comes and he begins to teach. And here, what does he do at the very end? He went among the villages teaching. Their need for belief Belief that only comes through, the faith, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Son of God comes through the teaching of the Word of God, comes through the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 
Or Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Christ will not force his miracles on a hostile, unbelieving audience. And yet, out of his love for us, he takes our hostile and even them unbelieving hearts of stone and he changes us and he gives us a heart of flesh in order that we might see and experience his saving work of redemption in our lives. That is truly amazing grace. That we were in opposition and rejected him and yet he continued to give us what we needed to hear. And what an example that should be for us and how we should respond to those who reject us. That we should lovingly and kindly and gently and yet boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as he did for those who rejected him. When others reject us, we are able then to imitate the marvelous great grace of God. And we, his own creation, we rejected him in our sin. We rebelled against him and yet our hatred for him, not constraining his love for us, pouring out out upon us on the cross. And we can do the same to others. Pour out the love of Christ even in the midst of rejection. And we are commanded to do so. And that is the means of hope for those who reject Christ, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can model that love in how we respond to the rejection, as painful as it may be at times. There are certainly many, maybe in your life, who you know, maybe it's a family member, who have rejected for years. And we may have all probably heard of different testimonies of those who've rejected all the way to their deathbed. And yet God in his goodness and grace, even them, even then, uh, calling to them and seeing them, even moments before perishing, respond in repentance and faith in Christ. And others resisting for years, just a few, or even weeks. And maybe even you may have known someone who's resisted for only a few minutes, at least in conversation with you, resisting all the way up to that point and then now hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing the good news of what Christ has done for them and responding. And for us as Christians, we know that we are to faithfully proclaim the good news because we stand upon the truth found in John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What good news it is for us to know that unbelief is overcome by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not let us stay in our unbelief. But by your grace, you provided for us faith that you might be able to do the mighty work of redemption in our lives. And yet, Father, let us not now as believers trifle with unbelief. It is a dangerous, dangerous sin. A sin that is not without 
that has, that has certainly been paid for, but a sin that is not to be played with. And Father, may we as those who desire to proclaim in obedience to you the gospel, not, not be blind to the power and the danger of unbelief and the life of a person that we may be ministering to. We pray that you would use us as conduits of truth to those in unbelief as we once were as well and draw them by your grace to faith and belief and repentance in the gospel and who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you, Father, for your love. Your love that overcomes unbelief. We pray that as we would share and join in the offense of Christ, as we see in our own lives maybe areas of unbelief that are dangerous, we would respond the way you respond and proclaim the good news, the truth in our own hearts and to those that are around us. And we ask this in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.